Good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians on Sunday morning. Bob was in trouble. He forgot his wife's anniversary. His wife was uh, very angry. She told him, listen, tomorrow morning, Bob, I expect to find a gift in the drive. Well, you forgot our anniversary, Bob. How could you do that? I expect tomorrow morning in our driveway a gift that goes from zero to 206 seconds. It better be there, Bob. Next morning, he got up early and went to work, and his wife got up, and she looked out the window, and there in the middle of the driveway was a box that was gift-wrapped, and so she got curious and was confused and put her robe on and shuffled outside and got the box and brought it inside, opened it up, and pulled out of the box a brand-new bathroom scale. Bob has been missing since Friday. Just hey, just a little cheesy humor. You know, Father's Day's coming. You know, I'm going to have a lot of dad jokes just warming you up. Got some cheesy humor on the way. Um, but anyway, we're going. Let's let's stand with our Bibles open. Let's stand with our Bibles open. Let's go ahead and read the Bible. We need to, right? But we're going to be uh, talking about marriage relationships this morning. We're actually going to see how the gospel that's at work in us, producing a gospel unity among us as a community of faith, should be impacting and at work in all our relationships, even our relationships within our homes. So take a look. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to begin to read. Let's back up and read it, starting verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well for you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, we thank you for bringing us to this place this morning to worship you through song with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to fellowship with one another. And Lord, I thank you for this time we're going to get to experience over these next several minutes of being under your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be just that, under your word, submitted to your word. Lord, we recognize that we need to hear from you today, protect this room from this man's opinion. I pray that we would, uh, Lord, understand what this text is communicating to us. And we need your help to do that. So I pray that your spirit would uh, take your word, plant it in our hearts, and may it produce eternal fruit that honors you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And when we read that right there, that may even be a familiar passage to a lot of us today, but when that was originally read to the church in Ephesus, remember this is a letter Paul's writing back to a church he planted 
It would have been sent there by messenger. Messenger shows up in the city. The believers in Ephesus who make up the church of Ephesus gather together. And it's read all the way through, all six chapters at one time. And when that section right there would have been read to the original readers, it would have sounded extremely radical. All right? So in that ancient Greco-Roman world, it was dominated by patriarchy and hierarchy. And so for Paul to just, even for him to respectfully address a class of people who are considered as nobodies right here in this letter, who would have been the kids and the slaves and the women, that would have been very radical in and of itself. But it's a next level radical, radical to address them equally with masters and husbands and fathers. And then it's a whole other level of radical for him to instruct all of them to be in mutual submission to one another and to respect one another in a relationship. That would have stood out as very countercultural. And today, we're called to live out God's Word as Christians today, to live out this passage in our lives today as New Testament Christians. And as we live out these verses today, it may not stand out, obviously, in culture the same way it would have stood out then. But still, as we live this out, it is a radical departure from the way that a lot of people in the world operate within their relationships, specifically relationships in the family, relationships in the home. But the response from the world should be the same. The response in the world should be the same as it was back then. In other words, us living this out should make people in the culture and around us as we live out gospel-centered marriages, as we are gospel-centered parents and the way we parent our kids. It should stand out in the world and it should make the world stop just like it did back in the first century and go, hmm, that's way different than the way we do those relationships. And by God's grace at times, what it should do is it should cause people to stop and not just go, man, that's different, but that's better. That's better. Recognizing, maybe they're not able to put it in their own words, that it's God's design. And since he designed it, and when you do it by his design, it is certainly just that. It's better. And that tees up opportunities for us to tell them what is inside of us that is helping us live this design out. All right, so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to learn about the gospel transformed marriages and the gospel transformed parenting relationships that we should be experiencing in our lives. And so we're going to begin this morning by looking at gospel-transformed marriage. What does it look like to experience a gospel-transformed marriage that is reflecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and is shining the light of the gospel brightly in the community that we live in? How to experience a gospel-transformed marriage. Now, a couple quick things before we jump in. Number one, everything that can be said about this passage, I'm not going to be able to say this morning. All right, just keep in mind, a couple years ago, a few years ago, I can't remember exactly when, uh, we preached a sermon series called Family Matters, and I preached four sermons out of this one passage that I just read. We're just doing one sermon this morning, all right? So the, if, you, if this isn't enough for you, go back. Sermons are archived online. Feel free to dig in there. We went through verse by verse, four sermons through this passage. There's a lot here to unpack. We won't be able to cover it all this morning. We're going to cover it in one big swoop, and in one big swoop, try to catch the, the main authorial intent of the text. Number two, at this point of the sermon, some of you realize, oh gosh, this is a marriage and family and children sermon. I don't think a lot of this is going to be applied to me. I kind of wish I'd have known about this before I came to church this morning. Maybe you're thinking about that right now. But I want you to know we're one big church family. And this is a passage for all of us this morning. This may not hit you exactly where you're at, all of this in the stage of life that you're living out right now. But it is going to hit a lot of different people in our church who are living a lot of this stuff out right now. And so we're one big church family, and it can help you. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you don't have kids, uh, but this does help you pray for and even help those, as you understand God's design for these things, your brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking through those different things. Students here this morning, all right? 
you may wonder how this applies to you. This will give you, most of you, one day, uh, if you're a teenager in our youth group, most of you in the next 10 to 15 years will be married. We'll be having kids. It's important for you right now to be preparing for that by thinking about God's design for those things in your life. So all of us can lean in. This is a sermon for everybody today. Third, I can't overstate the importance of what we're studying about this morning. The foundation of society is the family. You know, you know why the enemy loves to attack the family? You know why there's so many stories of brokenness and messiness? And there's a bunch of stories in here about conflict in the family that you grew up in. The absence of a father, the absence of a mother, uh, divorce, strife. There's a lot of messiness and there's a lot of brokenness in the home. A prodigal kids, of parents being brokenhearted by the choices that their kids make. Why does the enemy want to attack the home? Because the home and the family is the foundation of society. Got that? Family is the foundation of society. The foundation of society is the family. But here's what you also need to know. The foundation of the family is marriage. It's been said, so goes marriage, so goes the family. So goes the family, so goes the world in which we live. All right, so what we're talking about this morning is really, really, really important. Let me read that again, all right? So goes the marriage, so goes the family. So goes the family, so goes the world in which we live. All right, this is really, really significant. This is really, really important. A powerful way that we as a church on mission follow Christ and engage everyday people with the gospel in the neighborhood, in the community that God's placed us in. The way we make a difference is by God's grace building gospel-centered homes right here in this city that God has placed us in. And you know what that begins with? It begins, a gospel-centered family begins with a gospel-centered marriage. With a gospel-transformed marriage. Two believers experiencing that kind of marriage. Two things that we can draw out of this text that can help us build that kind of marriage. Number one is we need to understand that marriage is a relationship designed by God. It wasn't our idea. All right, God created this amazing human institution called marriage. We understand this from God's Word. We see it right there in verse 31. It says right here in our text, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now where did Paul get that from? He's reaching all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, to what God himself said about the human institution of marriage that he founded, that he created. All right, that's important to know. God founded it. God designed it. It was his idea. And it's a really good idea. And it's a good idea because it comes from God who never has a bad idea. And since God designed the marriage relationship, and not just the the marriage relationship, think about this, He gave us the capacity as image bearers to relate with one another in the first place. That comes from God, who exists within the Godhead of the Trinity, relationally with each other for all of eternity, makes us in His image, and gives us the capacity to relate with one another. So it makes sense if God designed marriage and He gave us the ability to relate with one another in the first place to learn from Him what this marriage relationship is supposed to look like. He's the one who designed it. He's the one who created it. And He reveals His design for it. He reveals His desire for it through His Word. We use that word a lot, right? We, the Bible, the Word. Remember, this is His Word. This is His heart revealed to us through words. All right, And through His Word, He has revealed to us and communicated to us His design and how He intends for us to live within it in marriage. The question is, is are we allowing the authority of God's Word to shape our view of the family? To shape our view of marriage? Or are we listening more to the voices around us? Like friends and family. That, 
We need friends and family. There's times where we need counsel. There's times where we need people to help us make different decisions within our different relationships, even marriage relationships. Just be careful that the counsel of friends and family doesn't become the ultimate authority and the ultimate authoritative voice in your life when it comes to marriage. That's what God's Word is. Maybe for you, you've allowed the voice of culture to shape the way that you think about marriage. Maybe you're allowing Hollywood's voice to shape the way you view your marriage. And some of you watch way too much Hallmark movies, thinking your husband needs to be a scarf-wearing guy walking around the house giving you breakfast in bed every day. I don't know. What authority shapes how you view marriage? The way you answer that impacts everything else in your marriage. And for the believer, there's one right answer. Here it is. It's the Word of God. And when we approach God's Word, as, and this is the way we do here as at our church. So one of our values here is clear biblical teaching. It's our sole authority. That's kind of the way we roll here for our church. And when we approach God's Word as the holy, inspired, infallible, and errant, sufficient, complete, perfect Word, It clearly defines marriage like this. It's a covenant relationship right there in God's Word in Genesis and right here in Ephesians 5 between a man and a woman for a lifetime. It's a forever commitment. All right? And God gives us specific responsibilities within that union that we need to understand. All right? Number one is this. So under this first point about uh, understanding that, uh, understand what a gospel transformed marriage looks like. We got that, you know, it's designed by God. And number two, we need to understand some specifics of that design and our responsibilities in it. We need to understand this, that marriage involves Christ-like submission towards one another. That's the second sub-point. We need to understand that marriage involves Christ-like submission towards one another. Now, Paul uh, begins this section actually back in verse 21 with an overarching statement right there. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. So over the last several weeks, Paul spent a lot of time unpacking for us the kind of united gospel community that the gospel at work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit should be producing. Right? We're a community of people who have been saved by grace. Let me say it this way. Who have been saved by a selfless, loving Savior and are now called to selflessly submit ourselves in relationships to one another. And this is what it means to submit to one another. This is what I mean by that. We're all called to submit to one another in the community of faith. And this is what he means by that in verse 21. To submit to one another means in every way I relate to you as a brother and sister in Christ in a way that I consider you to be more important than me. That's what it means to submit to one another. And that's a radical difference in the way the world rolls. But the gospel turns everything on its head with relationships. And we no longer have a a me before you attitude. The gospel turns us into having a you before me attitude. And so we are a community of faith who live that out, who serve one another, who think about one another's needs before our own, who edify one another, who encourage one another, who love one another. That's the kind of Christ-like attitude that should be marking our life as a community of faith. And what Paul's saying right here, that's also the same attitude that we're to bring into our marriage relationships. Now, he starts off here specifically with instruction for the wives. So we're going to start with the wives this morning. You say, why? Because Paul starts with the wives right here. So wives are going to go first. What does he say here? Pretty famous verse. Wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands, ask to the Lord. Now, let me stop here. Guys, if you have not historically been a super audible person in a service before, uh, you haven't taken arduous notes in a service before, this is not your morning to start that, okay? Right here in this section right here. 
That's not going to go well for you. They don't be sitting there going, mm-hmm, preach it, mm-hmm, submit. By the way, if this is one of the only verses that you've memorized, shame on you. You need to memorize more verses. Just remember, she's got three verses. You've got seven coming your way in just a second. So be humble and be quiet, and, and you can get more audible when we get to your role, okay, in just a few minutes. But what does Paul mean here, when this instruction, when he's saying, uh, submit to your husbands? He's saying this. That wives, here's your role in your marriage, that you are to demonstrate Christ-like submission by following the spiritual leadership of your husband. Verse 23 says, your husband is this, he's the, he's the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. And this is what that means. I want to be very clear this morning. This means that a Christian husband has been given the unique responsibility to be the head, the spiritual shepherd of his home. That is a weighty responsibility, and that the weight of that responsibility is on him. Amen. And these verses are instructing you as a wife to follow his leadership in Christ-like submission, to help him, to walk with him as he leads. Now, before you jump to a conclusion, before you hit send on that email, all right? Let me give you three things that submission is not. What, it, what submission is not right here. Number one, submission is not inferiority. Let me prove it to you. Right, think about the Trinity. Think about in the context of the Trinity, how there's submission there. You have the Trinity, the Godhead, uh, God the Father, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the Trinity, you have, the, you have God eternally existing through those three persons, one person existing through three persons. It's a mystery. We can't explain it, but it is a biblical doctrine that we hold to. And in the Trinity, you've got God the Son, Jesus, submissive to the will of the Father, and then you have the Holy Spirit in submission to the person of Christ. And yet we understand that it's one God manifesting Himself in three distinct personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if there can be equality and submission in the Trinity, there can be equality and submission within a marriage relationship. It does not mean inferiority. Two, submission is not the same. It is not synonymous with obey. We're going to get to the word obey in just a moment. It's the word that children under the care of their parents, that's their instruction. That's not the same word that is given to the wife right here. Right? This is not this does not mean to obey. Right? That's a good place for the women to say amen this morning. That's not what that means. All right? the, this is not a verse that's to be misused by men as some kind of dictator to wield this over your wife, demanding obedience. It does not mean your way or the highway. Any husband wielding this verse like that in the context of a marriage relationship is not being the husband that Ephesians, Ephesians 5 is calling you to be. Third thing, submission is not, is it's not absolute. This is not a verse that means that all women are in submission to all men. It says, submit and follow the spiritual leadership of who? Your own husband. Now, regardless of how that makes you feel right now, if you're a wife, if you're here trying to live out that role, just hold on to that for a moment. Just hold on to it for a moment, and let's turn with Paul and see how he instructs men now. All right, Think about your role, but think about it in the light of what he's about to say to the men. He says, men, here's your instruction. Guys, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. So ladies, your assignment in your marriage relationship, you're called to demonstrate Christ-like submission by lovingly submitting to your husband's leadership. Well, how is he supposed to lead? By lovingly dying to himself and loving you like Christ loved the church. I hope that that statement in and of itself brings some comfort to you about your responsibility in that marriage. You're called to follow his leadership, but how is he called to lead? He's called to lead 
like Christ, by lovingly dying to Himself to meet every need of yours. That's what He's called to do. He's called to love like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He loved the church with what's called agape love. Three types of love in the Greek. The one he's talking about right here is agape love. It's God-like love. It's a self-sacrificing love that God demonstrates to us. Well, how does God love us? Let's dig into that a little bit. How did Christ love the church? We don't have to wonder. This letter has just beautifully laid out for us the love that God has shown us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, through the gospel. This book helps us understand the love that Christ has for His bride. For example, one, what we learn in Ephesians chapter 1 is that God's love is sovereign. Meaning that God doesn't feel, God doesn't just love us because He feels love for us. Right? God loves us because in His sovereignty, He's chosen to love us. Even though we were unlovable. Meaning that we're called to love our wives, men, with a love that's not rooted or grounded in our feelings. I get so frustrated when I hear somebody who claims to be a Christian, who claims to be a Christian husband, who'll say something like, well, I just don't feel in love anymore. Listen, it doesn't matter whether you feel like you love her anymore. The love that God's called you to love your wife with is a sovereign love that says whether or not you feel like it, you choose to love her. That's an agape kind of love. He chose to love us even while we were sinners. Two, it's a sacrificial kind of love. Look at verse 25. It says that Christ gave himself for her, his bride. Think about the sacrifice in God's love that he's demonstrated to you. Think about how God empties heaven, sends his only begotten son to die on the cross, to lay down his life for you. Now we're called to show this kind of godly love that God has shown, that Christ has shown for his bride through our sacrificial love for our wives, expressed in our willingness to die to ourselves. Crucify our flesh. Put her needs before our own. Three, it's a sanctifying love. Look at verses 26, or just kind of scan your eyes at verses 26 through 27. 26 27. Paul's trying to get husbands to think. He's saying, think about the way that Jesus has sanctified the church. Now, Paul's point here is not that we have the ability as husbands to present our wives as holy and blameless and sanctified before God. We can't do that. That's not our job. But what he is making us think about is we do have the ability and the capacity to cultivate an environment where she can grow spiritually and grow in righteousness, praying with her and serving her and encouraging her in her spiritual walk, in the way that you're walking with the Lord, in the way that you're walking with with God? It's a sanctifying love. Four, it's, it's an unconditional love. Aren't you glad this morning? Let's just celebrate the gospel for a moment. Aren't you glad that God's love for us in Christ Jesus is unconditional this morning? Amen. That He doesn't love us conditionally? Aren't you glad that within our relationship with God that there's not like, once you're locked in, once you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're His and you're adopted into the family, aren't you glad that there's not certain boundaries that if we were to cross them, God's just going to go, you know what, that's it. You cross the boundary one too many times, you're out of the family. Bye. Peace out. Sorry, it's over. No, every time we cross the boundary, when we're in that relationship with our Heavenly Father, because we still have a flesh, we're still prone to wander. When we wander and when we get outside of those boundaries that He's called us to to live in, what does He always do? In love, He pursues us. He woos us back. Listen, husbands, God has called you to love her with an absolutely unconditional love where there are no boundaries. There are no expectations. There's no performance demanded in order for her to earn your love. We're called to love her with a love that's unconditional. That reflects the gospel. And men, in order to demonstrate, in order to express this agape love, you know what it requires? It requires for us to die to ourselves daily. 
Man, you are called, called to love her like Jesus loves you. You know what that requires? It requires you daily crucifying your flesh. A Christian marriage is a call to die. That's for men and for women. That's for husbands and for wives. Listen, men, I'm going to talk to you for a moment because I've, I've just felt, as I've come through this passage this week, in a renewed way, how the weight of all of this is uniquely on the men. Men, God has called you to one wedding ceremony and a lifetime of a million funerals. Daily, waking up and choosing to crucify your flesh. Reflecting Christ's love for us. Dying to comfort. Sacrificing time for her. Putting her needs above your own. That's what God does in the life of a man. The curse messed everything up. Adam was supposed to be leading his wife and loving his wife. But in that moment... The curse happens. He should have stepped in and spiritually led, by the way. But the curse falls on man when they disobey God in the Garden of Eden. And Adam goes from a selfless husband who loved his wife in God's perfect design to becoming selfish. And thinking about himself first. And that, hey, that sin disease, we're all born with it. And even after we come to Christ, it still lingers in our flesh, man. We're called to daily die. We're called to crucify our flesh. We're called to sacrifice time for her. We're called to put her needs ahead of our own. We're called to express our love to her. You know God expresses His love. He tells us how much He loves us in His Word. You know what that means? You need to tell your wife how much you love her. You're like, I told her I love her. On our wedding day, I told her that I love her. You need to tell her every day. Listen, in the same way, wives, one of your husband's greatest needs is to feel respected. Men are just wired that way. You say, listen, my husband, he's, he's, he's a work in progress. He, need, he, he needs a lot more constructive criticism than he needs respect and encouragement. Trust me. You leave that up to the Holy Spirit. And listen to this. God has a way of using the support and the encouragement of a godly wife respecting her husband, even when you feel like he doesn't deserve it. Expressing the gospel goes both ways. He has a way of using that to turn a man into a respectable man. It's not all on you, but God can use it. And in the same way that his need, men, wives, that his need is to uh, feel respected, husbands, you need to know that her greatest need is to feel loved and to feel accepted. And not just feel loved, to feel liked, to feel valued. She's got... The enemy working overtime every day in her mind, attacking her identity, whispering lies into her heart, stirring up insecurity. She needs a godly husband in her corner speaking love into her life, expressing how much you love her, actively also finding ways to serve her, listening to her. This is daily crucifying the flesh. These are ways you do it. These are ways that you show her the love that Christ has shown you. Listen to her. See her as a gift of God's grace that He's given you as a helper. Value her thoughts. Value her opinions. There are so many decisions that I was going this way and I lean on my wife and here we go back this way and she was right. Take her preferences into account. You know what that means? That means, guys, sometimes you need to do something she wants to do. I don't know if I get many amens there. You're like, well, I, I, I offer to take her fishing every weekend, Pastor. Well, if she likes fishing, that's good. But if she doesn't, that's not good. You need, to go, you need to go shopping with your wife at times. You need to sit down with her. And you need, good grief, you need to sit down and watch a chick flick with your wife every once in a while. 
You say, that's hard. I I mean, I I don't know if I can do that. Listen, Jesus sacrificed comfort to lay down his life for his bride on the cross. You can crucify your flesh and sit down and watch a romantic comedy every once in a while with your wife. Now, those are pretty simple, practical ways to flesh this out, to die to self and to put her needs before your own. But my call as a husband is to, to express agape love to my wife and to love her like Christ loves the church runs deeper than that. It looks like this, leading the way when it comes to extending grace in that relationship. Being the first one to repent. Being the first one to seek forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, but wait a second, that don't sound quite right. What about when it's not my fault? What about when I didn't do anything wrong? You look at the cross, you remember the role that you've been cast to play in that marriage. And you look to the cross and you see Jesus hanging on that cross. The manliness, manliest of men. Jesus Christ hanging on that cross in our place. Taking the responsibility of sin that's not his own. Sins he didn't commit. Sins that weren't his fault. Sins that had nothing to do with him. Guys, all the weight in this passage, all the weight of the responsibility is on us. We are called to lead the way. We serve first. We have the responsibility of loving her with a sovereign, selfless, sacrificial, sanctifying, unconditional love. But daily crucifying our flesh and putting her needs before him. That's an Ephesians 5 husband. That's an Ephesians 5 man. And let me tell you, I've been in ministry for 20 years. Kind of a long time now that I think about it. And I've spent a lot of time around a lot of different married couples. Spent a lot of time counseling married couples. And I'll tell you... You show me an Ephesians 5 husband and 99 times out of 100, also right there what you're going to find is an Ephesians 5 wife. Most of the time where there's not an Ephesians 5 wife, let me tell you what, there's also not an Ephesians 5 husband. Guys, the weight of the responsibility is on us. Now, at this point in the message, you may be feeling the weight of that, and it's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? It's intense. We've been called to demonstrate love to our wife that reflects the love that Christ has shown to his bride. And when you really think about that, maybe you're feeling the weight even as a wife of your responsibility right here. You may be thinking, I can't do this. Like what's laid out right here, I don't think I can do this. In just a few moments, at the end of this service, we're all going to recognize that that's exactly right. We can't do this. None of us can do this on our own. God doesn't expect us to do this on our own. And in just a moment, we're going to recognize all together, no matter where you're at. That's what, I, that's what I want you to know this morning, because you may be here and God may have just blessed you with some years of fruitful, blessed marriage by His grace. That's wonderful. That's an awesome thing uh, to celebrate. But there's some of you here this morning and you're like, listen, you're up there talking about serving my wife like this and, and her, you know, us being together in this union in this way that's laid out in this passage. We're just holding on for dear life this morning. I feel like we're holding on by threat, hanging on by a thread. If that's you this morning, if that's you, and you have a couple over here who've experienced a stretch of blessing in their marriage, both of you are here needing the exact same thing. The continued hand of God on your life and His Spirit working in and through your life to help you become what's laid out in this passage for His glory. None of us are better than each other. None of us have got this thing figured out. We're all in need of His grace. And I'm glad you're here, every single one of you. In just a few moments, us together as a church family, we're going to look together at Jesus. We're going to pray for each other. Believing that where there is messiness and where there is brokenness, the Holy Spirit can step in and heal. And where there is health, 
we're going to recognize that that has nothing to do with us. And we're going to depend on the Spirit together. And we're going to recognize that and ask Him to continue to bless our marriages. Here's the good news. We don't just have a Holy Spirit in our lives that can help us. He wants to help us. He desires to help us as we depend on Him to live out this design in our life. And not just in our marriage relationship, but also in our relationships with our kids. All right. So He's going to shift focus right here. And we're going to look for a few minutes... uh, we're going to conclude for the next couple minutes by just looking at how to experience a gospel-transformed parenting relationship. Now, marriage is hard work. Amen? Amen. Parenting is hard work. Amen? Amen. Parenting is really hard work. Some of y'all got little ones in the house. I, just a little levity. I found an article this week that gave some funny observation, little one-liners, about the real, reality of parenting little kids. All right? It says this, 88% of parenting is saying bedtime 150 times between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. every night. Parenthood is a journey, except it's mostly a journey traveling from one room to another room, putting away toys all day long. Here's one. Here's one. Save your voice from calling your kids. Just open a bag of chips, and they'll materialize out of nowhere. This is true for parents of little ones. 90% of parenting is just thinking about when you can lay down again. And this was my favorite. Can't find your kids? Sit on the toilet, and they'll find you. And all the young parents said, amen. They will find you quickly. Can anybody relate to any of that? And I know that's playful, but hey, parenting can get really stressful. And sometimes there can just be, can we just have confession moment? Can we just let down our guard that sometimes parenting gets so, it gets, sometimes you're having just that crazy day and the minivan's full of craziness and you're like, Lord, I know there are only four or five, but just get us to college as quickly as possible. <laughs> Lord, get us to college, make it quick. I don't have to deal with them throwing things at each other, throwing their vegetables, pitching fits, digging chicken nuggets and french fries out of their car seats all day long. Then they get older as teenagers and you're like, Lord, just get them married. Just get them to college. Let's get them married. Somebody else can pay, help pay their bills. Right. Any honest parents ever been there before? Amen. But here, listen to this. What the Bible shows us is that us rearing our kids and raising our kids up under our care isn't just about our kids surviving and getting out into society in one piece, the end game is that Jesus would be seen by them in our home, in our marriage relationship, and through the way we parent them. That the gospel would be modeled. That our kids would, through their time in our home and under our care, not perfectly, but progressively, would see their need for a Savior. And that by His grace and prayerfully, one day under our care, we pray this, would bow their knee to Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. Paul lays out some responsibilities. He starts with the kids right here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. All right, That's pretty straightforward. It's pretty clear cut. But don't look over the implied instruction right here for parents to cultivate an atmosphere where rules are made clear, where expectations are laid out about obeying your instruction. Where that structure's in place and also the discipline and the corrections in place to where when they don't follow that instruction, they understand it. They understand why it's a problem. The second responsibility for kids here is to honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that you honor your parents and you obey your parents that you'll live to be 105. That's not what that's talking about. 
Mainly what that means is that a child who learns to obey and honor the authority of their parents when they're young, what they do is they develop the emotional maturity and the ability to submit themselves under the, the authorities that they'll be submitted to for the rest of their life that will allow them to live a fruitful, long life if God wills it. That's what that means. But it's more than just a wisdom thing. It's also spiritual. We're called to create an environment in our home as parents where obedience is expected, where respect for authority is expected, because ultimately it helps point them to Jesus. It helps point them to their need for a Savior. It helps them understand, one, that the world doesn't revolve around them. And it helps them come to grips with their own depravity and their inability to keep rules. And as you lovingly, as a parent, hold a standard of behavior over their life and expect them to obey it, and you meet them with consequences when they won't, they'll feel how much they fall short of that standard, and it provides you opportunities to the one who never broke a rule, who lived a life of complete obedience to the Savior that they need, He's the one who never fell short, and it's a Savior who can come into their life if they bow their need to Him as their Lord and Savior and can live inside of them and help them pursue godliness and pursue a life of honoring God for His glory as they then submit themselves to His loving authority. And prayerfully, they've seen glimpses of in the way that you've parented them. Now, here in this text, what Paul does in verse 4 is he turns again to the men. Weight of this text is on the men. And in essence right here, he, he specifically addresses the fathers here. Do you see that? It's a joint effort. Listen, parenting is a joint effort. Absolutely. What would we do? We just had Mother's Day without our moms. But there is a unique responsibility on men that's pointed out right here. This text is instructing dads to take the ownership, not just of the spiritual leadership of your marriage, but of your entire home, and to be the one who's setting the expectations primarily for obedience and submission to authority in the home. You've got to feel the weight of that. But it's also saying, as you do that, be very careful. Because in your flesh, he's, he's telling you one thing to not do right here and one thing to do, man. First, he says, do not provoke your children to anger. Be very, very careful not to provoke them to anger as you're seeking to lay out those expectations and you're trying to cultivate an environment in your home where submission to authority is expected. Be very careful that you provoke them to anger. And you can do that in one of two ways. You can either in your flesh as a Christian father slide to a side of over-discipline or you can slide to the other side in the other ditch on the other side of the road of under-discipline. Dads, if it's all wrath, all justice, all the time, always correction, no space for gentleness and grace and love, you will, I prompt, you will push them away and they will resent you. And the other end of the spectrum is just as dangerous, under discipline. If you don't have the courage as a man of God to apply the authority that God's given you to discipline them, to hold the things when you say to do this and it's not done, to meet that crime with the appropriate consequence if you tend to worship your kids and you never say no to them what are they going to do they're going to grow up thinking that the world revolves around them and it's not going to go well for them and they're going to get out of the world and they're going to experience that firsthand and they may not be able to articulate it it may be more subconscious but they will resent you for that as parents we seek to parent them with a balance of firm expectations and grace. Fathers, do not provoke your kids to anger. That's what we do not do. But then he says what we do right here. Verse 4, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what we do. That's what we spend a lot of time doing, man. 
This is about making Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema, the central business of your family. That's on you guys. That's a passage in Deuteronomy that instructs parents to teach our kids the things of God diligently, talking to them when you sit and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you make it part of your life. Dad, your primary responsibility is not to produce a CEO or a five-star athlete. Nothing wrong if that happens. That's actually something to celebrate if that happened. But it's secondary. I mean, we live in a day where kids got private coaches for everything. My kids have a private coach for baseball. Nothing wrong with that. But isn't that true? Everybody's got private coaches for everything. We want to see our kids succeed in so many things. So we've got a private coach for baseball and football and soccer and pitching and volleyball and basketball and checkers and everything else. <laughs> I want my kids to be great at all those things. Checkers, I don't really care about that. But there's nothing wrong with that. But you know what they need more than any of that primarily is they need a gospel coach in their life, in their corner, teaching them daily the things of God diligently, talking to them when they sit, talking with them while they walk by the way, when they lie down, when they sleep at night, when they rise, when you ride in the car about the one thing that'll matter 150 years from now when this vapor of a life is done. And that's Jesus. And raising a CEO or a college athlete or a responsible, hardworking young man or young woman who learns a trade or whatever, that's awesome. But don't lose sight of the main goal of parenting. And that's to install values and virtues of the kingdom of Christ into their lives and to model the character and the nature of Christ. Amen. That's right. and, and, and to model the gospel. And sometimes that means pointing them to Jesus when you get things right by His grace. And what I'm finding and what I'm learning is it means a lot of times... Teaching them about Jesus through my failure. Hence me sitting on my back porch this past week with one of my kids, knee to knee, eyeball to eyeball, telling them that I'm sorry for failing in an area as a father and asking for their forgiveness. And dad's in that moment in my flesh, that felt felt weak. I didn't want to do it. It felt like I was kind of lowering down to some uncomfortable, unmanly place. But all I can tell you is this, is that as I lower myself to that place by the, glory, by the grace of God, and I bring my kids in to where I fail, and I use those as moments to point them to Jesus, in those moments where I feel very weak and I let my guard down, what I've seen is God's strength and power works in some amazing ways in those moments. Now, I know what all of you probably are thinking right now. Is we, it's a big passage. It's very, very heavy, very, very weighty. How in the world do we do this? I cannot do this in my own strength. And you're exactly right. We cannot live out God's design as parents, as husbands, and and as wives without His help. That's why He says what He says in verse 18. What do He say? Don't be filled with wine. Let the things of this world be the dominating influence of your life. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's only as the Spirit fills us And works in us as we depend on God, as we walk in fellowship with Him, as it's the dominating influence in our life that we're the Ephesians 5 husbands and the wives that you need to be. It requires a humble dependence on Him. Don't leave here this morning feeling the pressure of figuring all this out, of piecing all of this together. We have to depend on Him. And you know what? He, as we do, delivers the grace we need to live this out. It's the Holy Spirit at work in me. It's the only way. It's the only way I can be the husband God's called me to be. It's the only way that I can be the parent that God's called me to be is with His help. So this is what we're going to do this morning. 
Don't answer, don't answer this out loud. I'm not asking, this is not something you answer out loud. In this room, are there some marriages that feel messy? Are there some parent-child relationships that feel off and weak and broken? Absolutely there is. But we have a helper. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're together going to be all honest with God in our hearts. We're going to own the situations in our life. And we're together going to turn to Him and cry out for His help this morning. Bow your head and close your eyes. I'm asking you, if you've got to leave, leave. That's fine. If you don't, don't. And I want us together as a church family just to spend a few moments of focused prayer in focused prayer this morning. Right now, I'm asking you to join with me this morning to pray in your hearts right now. Let's do this together corporately to pray for marriages in our church. To pray that God would raise up some Ephesians 5 husbands and Ephesians 5 wives. You may, hey, you may be single and you may be called to singleness. I'm asking you to reflect the nature of Christ and to carry the burden of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are married this morning and ask for God to perform miracles in lives today. Miracles in families in this room. If you aren't married, but you long to be, pray that God will give you the peace. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for our brother and sister in Christ who longs to be married. That hadn't happened yet. You pray for your own heart. Know that we're praying for you right now, that God will give you peace between this moment and the moment that that happens. Maybe you need to pray for your own marriage this morning. Maybe it would feel awkward. Maybe... There's things that are swirling through your mind that will give you every excuse not to do this. But maybe you need to reach over and you need to grab the hand of your spouse and spend some time praying together this morning. Come to the altar this morning. But even right now in your hearts, pray for your own marriage. Pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work that only He can do. Let's spend some time this morning also praying for families. Will you pray with families for, for families with me? Families are under attack. Pray for those parents who are, those young parents who are struggling with their kids. Pray for the parents who have adult children who are breaking their heart. Pray for the single mom who's here this morning who looks at a passage like this and feels like pieces are missing. Pray that the grace of God will fall on her life. A single dad that the grace of God will fall on his life. And give him what he needs to live this out. Now let me invite all of us to do this. Let's pray that God, after a message like this, will remind all of our hearts of the wonderful, glorious truths of the gospel. Nothing exposes our sin. Nothing exposes our brokenness like, like marriage and parenting. And if you feel discouraged this morning, if you feel like you got, haven't got all this stuff together, look at Jesus. His grace is sufficient for you. You exist eternally under the banner of Christ. Pray that, pray that God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, would help your heart to believe more that your spiritual resume has nothing to do with how awesome you are as a spouse, or how awesome you are as a mom, or how awesome you are as a husband. Your standing before God is not tied to any of that. You are loved and accepted fully by God as a child of God. Like in your soul, take a deep breath in that this morning. 
And then run to the Father and say, God, help me do what I can't do. I lean on you. I surrender to you. That's as far as I'll lead you. You take it from there. You let the Holy Spirit lead you as to how you need to pray. I'm not going to ask you to stand. We're not going to stand and sing this morning. I'm going to just ask you to sit there. If you want to stand and feel led to stand and sing, that's fine. But I invite you to sit there, to pray, to come to this altar, to kneel before God. Let's lift up families in this church, marriages in marriages in this church, our marriage, our family. Let's let's look to our helper this morning. He wants to help us. Let's lean in and depend on him.